Amen. <clears throat> when we look full in Jesus' glorious face, the things of the world grow strangely dim. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, I just want to invite you to open up your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, it is very important that you get a copy of God's Word into your hands, and so uh, our ushers uh, have some Bibles. Just slip your hand up, uh, and our ushers will uh, be sure to get a Bible into your hands. And if you don't have a Bible, please feel free to uh, keep this. This is our gift to you. And uh, so if you need a Bible, just slip up your hands and feel free to uh, keep that as our gift to you. <clears throat> How many of you make New Year's resolutions? This is one of those things where you can put your hands up. How many of you make New Year's resolutions? Okay, here's, here's, here's the next question, and you don't have to put your hands up for this. How many of you keep them? <laughs> Most people make New Year's resolutions here in the West. About uh, half of us make New Year's resolutions. Uh, and um, 9 to 12% of us keep them. It's not... Very much. Not a great number. And the top New Year's resolutions tend to be around health and wealth. So in 2023, the top New Year's resolutions were improved mental health, improved diet or nutrition, more exercise, and managing our finances better. Does that surprise anybody? Does not surprise me. I've made those New Year's resolutions myself to varying degrees of success. But why do we make New Year's resolutions? Why do we make New Year's resolutions? So making New Year's resolutions, actually, scholars think that that actually goes back like 4,000 years. So all the way back to the time of Abraham, ancient Babylonians were making New Year's resolutions. And you know why they made New Year's resolutions? Because they wanted to have better lives. And they believed that if they could make promises to the gods, the gods would give them the things that they really wanted in their lives. Greater fertility, better crop produce, better relationships, that they would live longer and prosper. And isn't that why we make New Year's resolutions today? If, if our top New Year's resolutions are for improved mental health, for improved physical health, and for improved financial health, why else do we do that? Except that we want to live better lives. And it's not a bad thing to want to live better lives. But isn't it interesting that even as we make these New Year's resolutions, we don't keep them very well? But the fundamental drive in human beings seems to be to gain pleasure and to avoid suffering. Because that's really the large goal for most of us. Just to gain pleasure and to avoid suffering. So as we look at 1 Peter chapter 4 here, we're going to look at the first 11 verses. Uh, Peter's speaking to people that are following Jesus in a world that is increasingly against Jesus because he represents a threat to societal norms and to personal autonomies. Jesus is not just here to give us better lives here. And Jesus is the king. 
He demands allegiance. And it's, it's right for us to give us or to give him our allegiance because he is the rightful king. And so Peter's speaking to those who are following Jesus in a place that's very difficult. Things were getting hard. Society was increasingly suspicious of this new religion, this new radical sect of Judaism centering around this carpenter from Nazareth claiming to be God of very God who is to be worshipped. And they were starting to suffer socially and relationally. And you know, I'm, I'm increasingly, uh, surprisingly, which makes me somewhat sheepishly, but refreshingly flabbergasted at the relevance of the Bible to us in every age, including this one. And so Peter's going to speak to us about the greatest goal of life. Do you guys want to know what the greatest goal of life is, the greatest purpose of life? Do you want to know? Do you want to know? Well, Peter's going to speak to us about this greatest goal of life, and then we're going to see three resolutions that Peter charges us with to ensure that we actually succeed in achieving that goal. So do you guys want to know what that goal is? Do you guys want to know what those resolutions are that you can make right now to ensure that you succeed? Do you want to know? Okay. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. We're going to read God's word. So 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1 says this. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do living in sensuality passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep living or keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. And God's people said, amen. Amen. Please feel free to take a seat. So let's just, let's just dive right in. Look at verses 1 and 2. Verse 1 says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, we'll come back to that, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. With the same way of thinking. 
For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And there it is. There it is. Life for us, life for humans, the way it should be and the way it can be is to live all of our lives for God's will rather than for human passions. So there's our first sort of broad challenge is to resolve to live for God's will rather than human passions. It is very difficult to live for God's will rather than human passions. You know why? Because human passions are human passions. I'm hungry. I'm tired. I'm angry. Human passions are human passions. So by nature, they're tough to get a hold of. I remember a friend of mine one time, we got up, we were, we had a bachelor weekend for his wedding, and, and we got up one morning after being up all night, and one of the guys had a bout of hangriness. Do you know what hangry is? I didn't know what hangry was until this point. This guy was actually ticked. Like, he was so hungry, he was angry. And he was like, he, he was a different person, man. Like, you couldn't talk to this guy, you couldn't reason with this guy. What we had to do is get him some food. Guess what? Not acceptable. Not acceptable. That's a human passion. And we're not, we're not called to live for human passions. We're called to live for the will of God. What's God's will in that circumstance when he's so hungry that he's snarly? Love your what? Neighbor, Neighbor as yourself. Dude is just loving like pancakes and maple syrup with butter on them. And believe me, that's, that's a real temptation for me. I do love pancakes. Okay? But there it is for us. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Human passions insert themselves in our affections between us and God. And Peter's saying that's not how this is supposed to be. And the whole, the whole thrust of this letter, as we've been working through this series, is this idea of being willing to suffer unjustly to do good. And while we're suffering unjustly, to be doing good. That's the whole thrust of this letter. And here it is. Our calling is to live for the rest of our days in the flesh. And what that means is in the human realm. No longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Do you want to live for the will of God? Do you struggle wrangling those human passions? I do. I do. And so look at this. Verse 1 again. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh... So in the flesh, in this context, refers to just being in the human realm. It doesn't mean the fallen flesh. It just means in humanity. Christ suffered in his humanity. And, here, and here's, here's what that means. This is really important, okay? Because, because Peter's saying, since therefore. So he says, this is something that happened. Now, therefore, because of it, you ought to do this. So Jesus suffered in the flesh, and, and we heard in, in previous weeks uh, from 3.18, that Christ also suffered the righteous for the unrighteous, so he suffered unjustly. Why? 3.18 says, to bring us to God. So Christ had to suffer in order for us to be able to be brought to God. 
Okay, so that's number one. So since Jesus suffered in order to bring us to God, and then also Peter goes on in 321 and basically says he has that, 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 that reference to baptism, therefore baptism now saves you. And not that baptism itself saves you, but baptism is our appeal to God for a good conscience. It's our public profession of an inward reality. So we get baptized because Jesus said, repent and be baptized. So we go into the waters of baptism because we've said we want to follow Jesus, and so we identify with him in his suffering and his death so that we can be identified with him in his resurrection. And so Peter says, Peter says, since he suffered to bring you to God and you are actually professing that you've been brought to God in baptism, you, you identify with him not just in that act, but in every act that therefore follows. And then not only that, at the end of the chapter, verse, uh, or chapter three, basically says, and Jesus now is seated at the right hand of the Father in that place of power and everything has been subjected to him. Everything is under his feet. Angels, powers, authorities, they are all his. And so when he says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, he's saying, remember all of these things. Jesus suffered to bring you to God and if you've been brought to God and you're professing that because you've been baptized and because... Jesus is over everything. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So Jesus is everything and has done everything, and because of that now, you must arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. You must arm yourselves with the way that Jesus thought. And here's how Jesus thought. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So what does it mean to arm yourself? Okay, well, if someone's coming to get you, if someone's coming to get you, you'll arm up so that you can defend yourself. So you'll gather weapons or you'll gather booby traps, or I, I haven't really thought too, too much about arming myself, but you'll gather all these things so that you can defend yourself. But now, what if you're actually going to take over ground? Well, then you'll arm yourself so that you have the tools that you need to take over that ground, right? So this is what Peter's getting at. We have to, in order for us to be able to live the rest of our days no longer for human passions but for the will of God, we actually have to arm ourselves. We have to gather the tools that we need to be able to defend ourselves from the assaults of the enemy and so that we can actually uh, gain ground and take over our lives for the will of God. Amen? Okay, and so, so he says arm yourselves with what? Arm yourselves with the, way, the same way of thinking that Jesus had. See, Loved ones, living for God is an exercise that starts with the mind. That's why Paul says, renew your mind. Don't be conformed to the, to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Right now, we live in a culture where the mind is under attack. We went from a previous culture that was, you know what, Intellect is good, emotion is bad, and we've totally swung the other way because of the weaknesses of that philosophy. And now we live in a culture where it's intellect is bad and emotion is good. But that's not what Peter says here. That's not what Paul says in other places, and that's not what Jesus says. 
Peter says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking that Jesus had, which is an exercise of the mind. And it probably is better to translate here, or not better, but way of thinking is, is really like resolve. So now we're back to resolutions. What is resolve? What is resolve? So resolve is just deciding firmly on a course of action. So Peter says, in order for you to live your days for the will of God and not for human passions, you have to arm yourselves with resolve. Decide firmly on a course of action and do not waver from that. Decide firmly on a course of action, do not waver from it, and here's what the resolve is. Whoever has suffered in the flesh, look at it in verse 1, the end of verse 1, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to, okay, in order to live for the will of God and not for human passions. So there it is. There it is. There it is. And this is, this is our first resolution. So if we're going to live for God's will and not for human passions, we must resolve to suffer rather than sin. You can write that down. We have to resolve to suffer rather than sin, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Jesus resolved to suffer horrible torture and even death rather than disobey the Father. I've been totally rocked by this this week because the question keeps coming back. Jay, have you resolved that you would rather suffer and even die than to disobey your Savior? And I see so many places in my life, in my history, in my life where I just want to get away from suffering. And the temptation to disobey is there every step of the way. And loved ones, hear me. Temptation to sin is temptation to renounce your calling. Temptation to sin is the temptation to say, no, I have not been redeemed by Jesus. His death is not sufficient for me. And in this moment, I don't want anything except what I want. I don't want anything except my glorification and my satisfaction. Temptation to sin is temptation to renounce our calling. And what is our calling? We've just been soaking in this for weeks. Calling as a chosen race, chosen people, amen? Calling as a royal what? Priesthood, amen? Calling as a holy what? Nation, amen? Calling as a people for God's own possession? Don't you want to belong to something worthy? Guess what? The creator of everything who is great and good is calling you to belong to him. There is no greater calling. Amen? So we, not, we must resolve to suffer rather than to sin. Look at verse 3. For the time is past, or the time that is past, suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. So Peter very dryly and sarcastically is basically saying, you've had enough time to chase the things that don't matter and the things that dishonor God. From this day forward, just put that stuff away. Put it away. For the time is past, or the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. 
Okay, we're, most of us are Gentiles. Is anybody here Jewish? Nope. Okay, so we're all Gentiles. Great. Gentiles here writing to a, writing to a Jewish or, yeah, it's probably a mixed audience, but, but um, uh, Jews as God's chosen people through the Old Testament would view Gentiles as outside. And Paul says that. The Gentiles formerly were far off, but now they've been brought near. So Gentile here refers to basically people of the world, okay? For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, in other words, just chasing all of the things that please our senses, taste, touch, sight, hearing, smell. When our senses guide us, we are in trouble. When we cannot say no to our senses, we are in trouble. So living in sensuality, passions. We just talked about passions a little bit. Being governed by our passions, our human passions, we are in trouble. Fallen human passions. I will throw the caveat in here. And this is the glorious reality of what Jesus has done. Jesus actually changes our passions so that we become passionate about the things that God is passionate about. Amen? Amen. Passionate for the glory of God and for the flourishment of his people. Amen? Okay, but, but being governed by human passions, we're in trouble. Drunkenness, we're going to see that a little bit later on, why that's a problem. But this is an indictment against drunkenness. If you struggle with drink, too much drink, you won't be able to live the rest of your time in the flesh for the will of God rather than human passions. Orgies, what are orgies? Don't answer that. I was thinking about that earlier. My wife and I were driving, and I'm like, how do I explain that? Orgies. Like, what are orgies? And she goes, baby orgies. <laughs> like doggies, baby do Anyway. I thought that was hilarious. Orgies. We live in an age where any kind of sexual deviance is okay because we want to chase our human passions rather than the will of God. Drinking parties. Same thing, and lawless idolatry. All of these things is idolatry. Idolatry means worshiping things that are not worthy. And guess what? Everything that is not God, Father, Son, and Spirit is unworthy. And so if we worship anything other than God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we're engaging in idolatry. And Peter says, the time that you've had before coming to Christ suffices for those things. Leave them there and don't pick them up again. And then he, gets, then he gets to the part that makes it hard for us. So we have those human passions. So from within, we suffer. When, when, when you say no to anger, that doesn't feel good, does it? When you say no to just, you just want to do something to feel good for a few moments, when you say no to that, it doesn't feel good, does it? So, so we suffer when we say no to sin because Parts of the fallen creature want those things, and it kicks up a fuss. Sin kicks up a fuss in us, and so we suffer. But we also suffer from without as well. Look at verse 4. So Peter's saying, put away all this stuff. And then he says, respect, with respect to these, they, the Gentiles, the world, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Have you ever been in a circumstance where there's something that you used to do and you came to Christ and those friends came back and they said, hey, bro, we're going to go, want to come. 
and you're like, oh, shoot, now I got a choice to make. If I say, yes, I dishonor my new Savior, and I dishonor and reject my new life, if I say no, I dishonor my old friends. If I say no, I reject my old friends. And let's be honest, if we reject Jesus for a moment, how often does he go, okay, I, I expected more from you. I can't believe after all that we've been through, you would just turn your back on me like that. Oh, now all of a sudden you're, Jesus doesn't do that stuff. But our friends do, don't they? Oh, now all of a sudden you're too good for us? We've all experienced this, haven't we? Hey, doesn't your book say not to judge? Oh, now you're holier than thou? Well, I know what you've done. You can't say no now. And then word starts to go around. Hey, did you hear what happened to Jay? He's a jerk now. Peter says this. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. And isn't that where we suffer? For some of us who are just really relational, the disapproval of people that we love is almost too much. Maybe sometimes it is too much. This is where the suffering is. Loved ones, we must resolve to suffer rather than sin. It is far better that we suffer the slings and arrows of humankind than to reject Jesus. And look at verse 5. So they, they malign us, yes, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. We are all going to give account. And for those who make us suffer when we make choices for Jesus, they're going to give account. Nobody is exempt. No one gets away with this. And verse 6, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So we preach the gospel. And remember, Peter is referring to those who preached the gospel before to the people that he's talking to, those people who are now dead. But the gospel was preached. And all through the Old Testament, the coming champion, the coming Messiah was preached. Why? So that even when we are judged in the flesh the way people are, we might be able to live in the spirit the way God does. This, is, this, isn't, just a, this isn't just a, hey, like, give or take 70 years, this is our deal. Right? Eternity is at stake. And the gospel comes to us so that even if we are maligned and ridiculed, in this life, we can be alive forever the way God is. So, do you want to resolve to live for God's will rather than for human passions? You need to resolve to suffer rather than to sin. We're going to suffer, and we've got to arm ourselves with that way of thinking. I'm going to suffer. So something comes up. I'm starting to be maligned. 
And I go, you know what, Lord, you said this was going to happen. And I would rather die. I would rather suffer than to dishonor you and have something between us. Then Peter goes on. Verse 7. Look at verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. So the time past is sufficient for doing those things. Put them away. Why? Because the end of all things is at hand. Do you believe that? The end of all things is at hand. Some people take that to mean that uh, Jesus' return is like imminent, like possibly yesterday, possibly 1984, possibly... 1917, there's all these predictions about when Jesus comes, okay? Those are references to predictions that have been made, okay? But what Peter is saying is here is that it's the final stage now. The final purpose, the final act of all things and for all things is now. We are living in the last times or the last age or in the final phase of God's ultimate purpose. And then he says, because of that, therefore... Look at that in verse 7. The the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be what? Self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So here's the second thing that we need to resolve. So we're going to resolve to suffer rather than to sin. We also must resolve to pray rather than to party. So I gotta, I gotta clarify the party thing because I think Christians should party. Christians should be happy and joyful and so on and so forth. And I, I preachers always want to be uh, cute so that you remember the outline. So party rather than or pray rather than party. But there's actually there's actually something here. All of that stuff that Peter says to do away with has to do with human partying, right? If you ever been to university or college or ever been a young person with friends. If you're a young person without friends, we can talk later, but you at least had one friend that was like, hey, let's go drinking or whatever. It's that type of partying that we want to put away, okay? Christians should be filled with joy because we're never going to die, amen? Well, we'll die physically, but then we're going to be raised to life again, and we're going to live for eternity, having fun with each other with perfectly pure motives, okay? So resolve to pray rather than to party. And here's where this comes from. The end of of all things is at hand. We're in the final stage, the final act. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. There it is again. Exercise of the mind. Be sober-minded. What does it mean to be sober-minded? It means to be clear. Why? So you can think. Be sober-minded, be clear-minded so you can think, and then be self-controlled. Self-control is about discipline. Hold on a second, Jay. I don't love that. Okay? That's your human passion talking. Silence it. Discipline is a good thing. We live in an age where we must be disciplined. If we need to be armed, it's, we need to be disciplined. We need to be trained. Okay? And we need to be able to think clearly. That's why drunkenness and all of those other things, Peter says, put away. Because if we're not clear-minded, we can't think. And if we can't think, we can't discipline ourselves. And we need to be disciplined and clear thinking. Why? Look at this. For the sake of your prayers. I don't love the translation. Be sober-minded 
and self-controlled to pray is a little bit better rendering of that. To pray. In order to pray, we need to be clear-minded and disciplined. The old-timers called prayer a spiritual discipline. Here's some practical stuff, okay? Prayer is really, really important. I'm going to talk about that in a second, but here's how you can be disciplined to pray. Set a time. Find a place. Find some accountability. I keep hearing, especially from young people, oh, I pray all the time. You know, I say, hey, how's your Bible reading going? Well, not that great. Okay. How's your prayer life? Oh, amazing. Okay, tell me about it. I just pray all the time, all through the day. That sounds good, but you know what that is? Popcorn prayers. When it hits me to do it, I just go, oh, God, help me with this. Oh, God, get me... Get me to that place on time where I'm 45 minutes late. Oh, Lord, I'm in an exam. Bring to mind things I've never read. You know, those types of things. Okay? Discipline yourself for prayer. Make it a priority, and here's why. So the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded to pray. Jesus is not just a good example. He's not just a good man and a good example for us to follow. He is God, a very God who is to be worshipped, and he is the power source. So if we are going to make good on our calling to live the rest of our days in the flesh or in the material world for the will of God and not for human passions, we need help. Amen? Say it with me. We need help. One more time. We need help. We do not have the power in and of ourselves. We need the power of very God. That's why we pray. A Christian who doesn't pray is a functional atheist. Let that sink in. We must pray. And and Peter says that. The end of all things is at hand. And you're not going to be able to, you're not going to be able to live the rest of your time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God, you're not going to be able to resolve to suffer rather than to sin unless you have the power of God in you, through you, and for you. And so he says, pray. How many of you want to go and pray? I see some nods. How many of you want to go and pray? Discipline yourself. Pray. Awesome, we're done. Okay, I'll finish this. There's a couple other resolutions. We must, we must pray. We must pray. He is our power source. So, to live for God's will rather than for human passions, we must what? Number one, suffer rather than sin. Number two, we must resolve to pray rather than party. Okay. And the reason that's there is because if there's a party, but you've got prayer time, say no to the party. Pray. Don't let anything, don't let anything come between you and your relationship with the Lord. And here's number three, resolve to love rather than to lust. Resolve to love rather than to lust. Look at verse eight. Above all, so above what? Above all, above what? All things. Keep loving one another earnestly. Why? It says because Love covers a multitude of sins. It's not that just like love just like brushes them away. It's just that love can actually overlook sins. When we're sinned against, we can actually overlook it if we're motivated by love. Okay? And so above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Now love, the difference between love and lust. So with all of that stuff that the Gentiles do, it's characterized by one thing, lust. Lust is not just sexual desire. Lust is the desire for anything that we have not been given. You can lust for cars. You can lust for boats. You can lust for 
trains. I don't know why you would. You can lust for, you can lust for money. You can lust for comfort. Lust is an illicit desire for anything that we have not been given, nothing that belongs to us. Love, on the other hand, though, is a desire to give what does belong to us for the good of someone else. How does that sound? A lot better, right? Okay. And so we must resolve to love rather than to lust. We are going to always live for human passions if we give in to lust, if we cultivate lust. And by the way, that has to do with what we stare at. Okay, stop staring at things that don't matter. Stop staring at things that don't belong to you. Stop staring at, th- at anything other than God. Our theme for this year is what? Eyes. That doesn't sound like a church that really knows what we're about this year. Eyes what? Eyes locked on Jesus. Okay, so that we can love him. We can treasure him, love him, and then Desire to give what does belong to us for the good of others. Okay, and we see this in a couple of ways. One, resolving to love rather than to lust. We got to love our neighbors. Brothers and sisters, we got to love our neighbors. Look at, look at um, verse 9. So right after he says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. It says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. What is the, what is the number one characteristic of showing hospitality to somebody? Number one characteristic, shout it out. Food, okay, okay, maybe that's the number one element, okay, yep, yep, okay. Anything else? Number one characteristic, showing love to people, or showing hospitality. Talking to them, them. okay. Care for their needs, needs. okay. If you're, what's that? Generosity, okay. If you're introverted, how does talking to somebody feel? Awful, okay, awful, okay. Okay, if you really, really love food, how does sharing food with somebody feel? Horrible. Not great, okay? How does generosity feel if you're not particularly generous or you don't have a lot? Not great. The number one characteristic of showing hospitality is inviting someone into your life and sacrificing your stuff for them. Sacrificing your time, sacrificing your comfort, sacrificing your money, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. And when we love one another earnestly, we show hospitality. Now, if we show hospitality because we're supposed to, and we're preparing food, and, oh, man, I wish they weren't coming. Why do I have to do this, man? If it wasn't wasn't for my love for Jesus, I would never bother. (laughs) Show hospitality without grumbling. One thing we love about this church is this is a really hospitable church. Praise God, and we're thankful for you. But show hospitality without grumbling. Someone's listening to that right now being like, ooh. (laughs) So loving one another means showing hospitality without? Grumbling. Okay. The second thing is serving one another. Look at verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Do you know that each one of you, when you come to Jesus and the Holy Spirit is given to you and indwells you, each one of you is given a gift. It's a supernatural gift, not a natural talent, okay? But we use natural talents too. It's a supernatural gift for the purpose of producing supernatural fruit in other people. Each one of you has one of those, at least one of those. Do you know what yours are? Do you know what yours are? Are you using it? 
Are you diligently and in a disciplined way, in a clear-minded way, out of love, using those gifts to serve? Are you? Because this is one way that we resolve to love rather than lust. I think a lot of people come to church hoping that people are going to use their gifts to serve them. Let's just shift the focus. You'll be unhappy if that's the way you approach things. You'll just always be unhappy. How about this? Hey, God's given me something. Let me just go and serve so I can love him and love other people. And here's also the other thing. It's not a choice. Look at verse 10. Right after, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. We don't have a choice. In order to be a good steward, we receive something from someone else that belongs to someone else, and we cultivate it, and we nurture it, and we use it to produce fruit for them. If you're following Jesus, you do not have an excuse to not serve. You do not. So I'll encourage you, and I'll take this moment. Talk to somebody. Go and check in at the Connect desk. Find out where you can serve, how you can serve. If you're not sure about your gift, ask the one who gives it. Show me what gift you've given me to produce supernatural fruit in someone else for the glory of God. Because you're a steward and you're responsible. And he goes through a few of these, what a few of these things look like. Two, two broad categories. Whoever speaks... So generally, people will have communication gifts, so whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. Who here would consider your... No, I'm going to ask this this for who, who, is, who here would consider your spouse a chatterbox? Or who here... <laughs> My wife's hand just went up. Ah! Man, if I didn't love Jesus so much. Okay. If you're a communicator and God uses you to produce supernatural, you can be talkative and God does not use you to produce supernatural fruit in other people. But if you're a communicator that God uses to produce supernatural fruit in other people, then you must speak as if you are speaking the very oracles of God. Everything that comes out of your mouth must be weighed, measured, and helpful for the building up of God's people. Think about that. Oh, shoot. Everything I say, everything I say must be as though I am speaking the oracles of God. Okay, for those of you who are not talkative, the next one is whoever serves. So we got these communication gifts, and then we've got these serving gifts. Everyone who serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. What does that mean? Well, when you serve, so if somebody talks... That can be fatiguing, but it, when you're serving and serving and serving and serving behind the lines and maybe not getting much recognition and so on and so forth, that can wear thin real fast and you get tired. And so the mentality is, no, you know what? I serve depending on the strength that the Lord supplies because God is going to supply you with strength to take care of the things that he's given you to do. Amen? Okay. So we resolve to love rather than to lust. That means showing hospitality without grumbling, serving as good stewards. And loved ones, hear this. What this means across the board is entering into the suffering of other people. 
to love rather than to lust is to set aside my own creature comforts and desires that way and enter into the suffering of other people. We are so afraid in the West, as the Western church, we are so afraid of persecution. We are so afraid of it. Our number one desire is to try to avoid it at all costs. That's why some, some, think that we ought to be taking over the government so that we can ensure our freedoms. That's why some, some, think that we need to do whatever we're told so that we can avoid persecution. Both of those positions don't come from God. The position that does come from God is that we enter into the suffering of other people using the gifts that we've been given to serve, using our material resources to love. Okay? James says that anyone who knows the good he ought to do and does not do it, sins. Anyone who knows the good he ought to do and does not do it, sins. We have brothers and sisters all over the world who are suffering terribly. And there is a call for us to give of our time, treasure, and talents to enter into that suffering because we're called to love rather than to lust. So loving rather than lusting is first about loving, not first, but here in this order, loving neighbor, but it's also about loving God, and this is more important, okay? We love God by loving others, okay? That's why there's this whole thing. Keep loving one another, uh, one another earnestly. Show hospitality to one another. Serve one another, okay? So we love God by loving others. We also love God by being aware of him. So look at verse 11. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. That's being aware of him and governing our speech so that it honors him. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. That's being aware of him and being aware that we need his strength to do anything, depending on him. So in our stewardship and in our speech, we depend on him in everything. And here's, here's where all of this comes down. Ready? We're in the home stretch. All of these things Peter exhorts us to, in order that, look at the end of verse 11, in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. That's the point. The point of all of the things that God has done for us, the point of Jesus' suffering, the point of his resurrection, the point of him being at the right hand of the Father with everything subjected to him is so that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Amen? Does your heart beat for the glory of God? Does it? Don't answer right away. That's a Q&A that you need to enter into with the Lord. In order that in everything God may be glorified. So, brothers and sisters, resolve this day to live for the will of God for the rest of your years rather than for human passions. And here's how we can do that. One, resolve to suffer rather than to sin. I would rather die than disobey Jesus. Resolve to pray 
rather than to party. There's nothing more important than your fellowship, your deep communion with the living God and resolve to love rather than to lust. The great commandment is to love God with everything that you've got and then to love your neighbor as yourself. And so in conclusion, we're back to New Year's resolutions. But not New Year, Y-E-A-R apostrophe S resolution. Because that can change every year. We're into new Y-E-A-R-S apostrophe resolution. The resolution for all the rest of the years that you have on this earth must be to live for the will of God, not human passions. The resolution for all of the rest of the time that you have, all of the rest of your years on this earth must be to suffer rather than to sin. The resolution for all of the rest of the years that you have on this earth must be to pray rather than to party. And the resolution for all of the rest of your years on this earth must be to love rather than to lust. Because, look back at verse 11, the very last sentence, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Do you believe that? If you do, then you can read the last word because God's people say, Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are so good and you are so great. And your people throughout history have suffered and endured much hardship to be with you, to obey you, because you promise that when we obey, when we behold you in faith, you will work. You have promised that you are faithful. You call us and you will bring to pass the things that you have for us. You will bring to pass your purposes. You will bring to pass your glory. And because you are so good and you are so great, you invite us to share in your glory. We are utterly undeserving and we freely acknowledge that. This calling is way too high for us. And we cannot attain unto it. But we believe what you have said, Lord Jesus, that your sacrifice of your body broken for us on that cross is sufficient to destroy the power of sin. And your resurrection, your new glorified body, and the promise for a glorified body for us destroys the power of sin, which is death. And so we praise you, we worship you. And Father, if there's, Holy Spirit, if, if there's somebody today here that is wrestling deeply 
uh, with sense of purposelessness, with temptations toward all of those things that we talked about, that the Gentiles chase after, that the world chases after, all of those things that promise satisfaction and cannot deliver. But instead, those things move us closer and closer to our own destruction. Holy Spirit, would you speak to them? Would you minister to them? Would you highlight Jesus to them? Would you open eyes? Would you change hearts? Would you prompt conversations? Would you move in this place? And Holy Spirit, as you are, as you are beckoning some to wake up, to recognize again the passion in your calling and to recognize again the greatness of your power and your love for us and to recognize again the importance of walking closely with you in deep communion. Would you minister to them? Would you move in this place? Would you do something unprecedented and amazing? Would you revive us? Loved ones, I, I think one thing that uh, God wants us to hear this morning We've been praying for revival. If you want revival, it must come from you. It must start with personal revival. If you want revival, it starts with personal revival. Father, thank you for speaking. Thank you for giving us your word. Help us to be a people that walks as individuals and as a collective in deep communion with you. Empower us to reject everything that is banal and bare and pursue you with everything that we have and everything that we are. I pray these things, we pray these things in Jesus' name and for Jesus' glory, amen.